everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the Communications Coordinator at High Point Church, and I hope that you all had a very Merry Christmas. First off, a couple quick updates on the podcast. This is our last episode of 2019, and we'll be taking a break next week before continuing with our masculinity episodes on January 7th. But before we get into the new year, we wanted to share a little bit about our upcoming sermon series based on the book of Nehemiah called Flourishing in the Midst of Opposition. Now, some of you listening may have just thought, there's a book in the Bible called Nehemiah? And for those that know the answer is yes, you still may not have any idea what the book is about. So in this episode, Nick Gibson and Hannah Ahn will give historical context for Nehemiah and how it fits into the redemptive story, share why we're going through the book of Nehemiah to start of 2020, and talk about what's in this series for your unsaved friend, family member, or coworker. Flourishing in the Midst of Opposition starts Sunday, January 5th, so we highly recommend listening to this episode before then, but if you're listening to this after, that's okay too. As always, if you have any questions or feedback, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in 2020. everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. I'm Hannah, and I'm here with Nick Gibson, our lead pastor. Say hello, please. Hey. <laughs> and for today's podcast, I'm really excited. We're going to be talking about our beginning of the year series on the book of Nehemiah. And this is kind of a, a teaser, if you would, a preview of what to expect in that series. Yeah. No, I was just thinking a little closer to the microphone. Oh, okay. Um, so... The series will start on January 5th. It's called Nehemiah, Flourishing in the Midst of Opposition. Can yeah, you? That was the most clever title I could come up with. Yeah, it's very catchy. <laughs> so um, maybe let's start out with giving a little historical setting of Nehemiah. Um, tell us a little bit about the background of this book. So the Old Testament of the Bible what's called the Jewish scriptures, right, is split up into two sections of narrative. So in the Old Testament, we have narrative texts, and then there are poetry texts. Most of those poetry texts are also called wisdom texts. So that would be Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, that kind of stuff. And then there's the prophetic literature, which is the books. Usually they have a prophet's name on them. Um, so from Genesis to the end of Second Kings is sort of the first telling of Israel's history. And it goes from the the beginning with Adam all the way until the exile. And then first Chronicles through to the end of Esther is a second telling and first Chronicles starts again with Adam, but it goes through the beginning stuff a lot faster, mm-hmm. gets into the Kings, into the exile. And then a lot of people have said Chronicles is like a history of the revivals of Israel. Mm. And that would make sense because people believe that, Chronicles was a re-editing of the history of Israel relative to the needs of the exilic Israelites. So the, they had lost their land, they'd lost everything. Mm-hmm. And they were the big question they had is, how do we revive this? Mm. And so for the people who think that First and Second Chronicles were edited during the time of the exile, it makes sense that that would be the emphasis of those books, mm-hmm. right? And then it, then it carries that history forward to the restoration so for people who are very unfamiliar with the history mm-hmm. of the Bible, right? Yes. You've got you've got Adam. And even those who are quite familiar with the Bible, right. we get a little lost in the exile, post-exile. Right. right. So yeah, the story goes something like Adam is the first man, Abraham then is the first mm-hmm. Israelite or Jew. 
he, God makes a promise with Abraham, right? Abraham has Isaac, then Jacob. Jacob has 12, these 12 male children that make up the 12 tribes. Mm-hmm. That becomes the nation of Israel. They end up in Egypt in the captivity. God brings them out during the exodus with Moses. Mm-hmm. Moses gives them the law. That's when they sort of officially become the Jewish people. The mm-hmm. sacrificial system starts. They have a national identity in the in the these laws and whatever. Joshua then leads them into the promised land, and they are a people in the nation of Israel. They go through a, pe- a time of leadership with these sort of charismatic leaders called the judges. Mm-hmm. The people keep failing. Mm-hmm. God gives them over to somebody who oppresses. Judges, them. such a depressing book. Judges is a depressing book. <laughs> that kind of spirals badly until the, God raises up this last judge who is also a prophet named mm-hmm. Samuel. Mm-hmm. Samuel is the last prophet judge of the people of Israel. The, then the people of Israel ask for a king, which they're not supposed to ask mm-hmm. for. God tells Samuel to give them a king, and they get Saul is the first king, Mm -hmm. then King David, and then King Solomon, right? Mm -hmm. After a kerfuffle with a couple other sons. Right. Right. And then after Solomon, um, Solomon's son Rehoboam divides the kingdom through his stupidity. Mm -hmm. And the northern ten tribes go with this person named Jeroboam, and then you've got Rehoboam in the south, and then there's a period where you have what's called the divided monarchy. There's two kingdoms of Israel. Israel and Judah are different kingdoms. Mm -hmm. And so that goes on for a while until Israel gets worse and worse and worse, and then God brings the Assyrians to destroy them. What would you say on a scale of one to ten, ten being righteous and one being not? Mm-hmm. What's the average score for most of the kings during that period? So so there was a test on, in, when I went to seminary on mm-hmm. like Bible history. Is it like, which ancient king are you? Yeah, it's kind of like, <laughs> which of these kings are good or bad? Okay, so the answer, here's one of the straightforward answers. Uh-huh. For the northern king of Israel, after Jeroboam, mm-hmm. there are zero godly kings. It's a bummer. Yeah, there's not with one. Mm-hmm. And then in the low, the southern kingdom of Judah, there's like four that are good and bad. Right. None of them are perfect. Decently good. Yes. Hezekiah is pretty good. Yeah. Josiah is pretty good. Um, Asa is pretty good for most of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Uh, but it, eventually the southern kingdom of Judah mm-hmm. falls far enough that God gives them over to destruction and the mm-hmm. Babylonians come and destroy mm-hmm. Israel and take basically three captivities. Mm-hmm. So they destroy once, take the people they think they need to take, mm-hmm. then they come back, destroy it again, take more people. And so this is when, when like the generation of Daniel, mm-hmm. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they get taken into exile mm-hmm. and they live in exile either most or all of their lives. Okay. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. God keeps him in exile for 70 years mm-hmm. at the end of that 70 years he makes a way for them to come back to the promised land and rebuild the temple mm-hmm. rebuild the city walls mm-hmm. repopulate the city of jerusalem restart the sacrificial system and become the nation of israel again mm-hmm. without a king mm-hmm. does that make sense yes there is no king mm-hmm. that's important anyway so uh during that time you get these books of the prophets Mal- malachi at mm-hmm. the end of this era at the beginning of it is Zechariah and Haggai okay those are the prophetic books mm-hmm. and then you get the historical books of Ezra and Nehemiah mm-hmm. in the in the Jewish Bible like with rabbis and stuff those are one book Ezra and Nehemiah is one book mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and if you buy like a commentary usually Ezra and Nehemiah is in one volume because right. they cover the same history and then Esther comes right after that hmm. and oftentimes people don't connect those because Esther's in Babylon right and you know all I think that, growing up reading Esther I never really thought about what time period it took place in. Right. It was totally historically anchorless for me. Right. And so one of the things that's interesting about Esther is it happens sort of um, in the middle of, and it, it happens like 
halfway through the restoration. Hmm. So like the temple has been rebuilt. Mm -hmm. There's sacrifices going on. Nehemiah has already visited. Jerusalem is getting repopulated. Meanwhile, there's an edict in the kingdom that all Jews should be killed and anybody Mm -hmm. who wants to kill them can kill them. Mm -hmm. So if God had not brought about with Esther what he did, all the stuff having in Ezra and Nehemiah would have Mm -hmm. all but just been pre-genocide. And the Jews would have been completely wiped out. Mm -hmm. Right? And so... Ezra is, or um, Esther is this book that shows that like God has their back. Mm-hmm. Just so it, it wasn't just like in Susa, all the Jews would have been killed. Like mm-hmm. it literally says in Esther, every Jew everywhere wow. is to be killed. Mm-hmm. So that would include Ezra and Nehemiah, all, right. the, all the returns, everybody who'd rebuilt the city of Jerusalem, all of that would have been just mm-hmm. wiped off the map. Mm-hmm. And that's incredibly important. And oftentimes right. when people read Esther, they have no idea that that drama is going on. Yeah, it is so much more powerful when you consider it in the context of what had just been happening and how much hope had risen and then suddenly this thing that threatens to destroy everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So those three books, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther kind of go together in that mm-hmm. in that time period. Mm-hmm. Though Ezra and Nehemiah cover what's happening in Israel mainly. Okay. So maybe this feels like an obvious question, but who are the main figures in the book of Nehemiah? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Nehemiah okay, is the right. biggest figure, right. obviously. And then there is a decent amount of reference to Ezra the priest mm-hmm. in the book of Nehemiah. Okay. Um, and then that's it for major characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, that There are so, a couple major villain, villains. Mm-hmm. Like there's a guy named Tobiah and a couple others that are in this. The The state of the of the empire of Susa, the Medo-Persian mm-hmm. empire, um, at this time is that it's called the trans Euphrates. So mm-hmm. it's basically the Euphrates and all the transitional lands over to the Mediterranean, mm-hmm. but not Egypt. Mm-hmm. All that land is kind of like lumped together because it's mostly desert mm-hmm. and it has a fairly small population relative to the rest of the areas that they governed. Okay. So it's just the trans Euphrates. Okay. All, it's all that land over by the Euphrates. All right. Does that make sense? But not the Tigris and Euphrates and would be modern day Iraq because that was considered a beautiful Hmm. A habitable, mm-hmm. wonderful place. Mm-hmm. We don't normally in America think that way. Sure. But the trans, the, the Tigris and Euphrates Valley was the most beautiful. Yeah. Very fertile. Whole very, area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So uh, looking back and thinking about this podcast in this series, I checked to see what our previous January series were. Yeah. So um, 2016, we did a series on prayer. 2017, we talked about real spirituality. 2018 was called Fighting for Joy. 2019, we talked about the love of God. Why Nehemiah for starting out 2020? Yeah, so for a number of years, we've done this thing that I've called the spirituality series, mm-hmm. where I've focused on some issue of Christian spirituality, especially one that I think is poorly understood. Mm-hmm. So I'd really encourage you, if you've come to High Point in the last couple of years, mm-hmm. going back to these January series, those are really good sermons to go back and listen to, I think, because they're really focused on some area of Christian spirituality. Yeah. Um, I did put together a spirituality series that was like four weeks and really slick for this year. <laughs> um, uh, based, slick, based, that's our main category yeah, we're looking yeah, for. Based on, it was based on substance mm-hmm. and going back to some issues in that because the staff had encouraged me to do that. Mm-hmm. I think it was a spirituality series out of Romans 12, okay. which we might do some other time. Mm-hmm. Um, I just didn't feel right. Um, mm-hmm. It uh, We hadn't done, well, I, I wanted to get back to like direct exposition of a biblical book. I wanted mm-hmm. to do something very different than Ephesians. Well, and we haven't done, I think from my memory and looking back, I think it's been quite a while since we did a series on an Old Testament book, just yeah. 
straight through. Yeah, I think that's relatively true. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, th- I think generally speaking, my my basic tact is to do like two New Testament books per one Old mm-hmm. Testament book. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, part of it is I had been reading Nehemiah and Ezra mm-hmm. for some lectures I had done and I'd become much more acquainted with the books. Yeah. And one of the things that I saw was that, you know, there are, it, it seems like for some Christians, there's this, there's this bifurcation. There's some Christians who are, who feel, who don't feel embattled right now. Hmm. They feel like Christians had controlled American culture mm-hmm. and that's going away. And now it's just fair. Like it should always been. Right. And I think there is really some truth to that, mm-hmm. right? There, there is some way, there's some ways in which Christian ish culture was kind of entangled with white culture sure. and some of that is kind of breaking up. And I think that's true. Mm-hmm. I also think that America was never really a Christian nation in the sense of being gospel believing, scripture obeying, mm-hmm. keeping in step with the spirit. Mm-hmm. Like we were never that. And this country has never been that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so those who seek to follow scriptural biblical faith in that way have always been in a minority, have always been embattled, even when even when you America would have been considered a majority Christian nation. Mm-hmm biblical faith was still scorned by many of the religious Christians in America. Mm-hmm. Like in the main in the liberal mainline, the idea of a resurrected Jesus was thought to be just intellectually indefensible and ridiculously stupid. Mm-hmm. And that was during quote Christian America. Mm-hmm. So even when there was a sermon published every Sunday evening in the New York times, mm-hmm. it, it, a lot of it was against biblical religion, partly because a lot of biblical religion was fundamentalist and really was legalistic and mm-hmm. pretty bad in a lot of ways. Um, but America's always struggled with that. And so I, I don't think that feeling embattled as a scripturally believing, historically biblical Christian who believes in the biblical gospel directly related to Jesus as he told it mm-hmm. and won it. Mm-hmm. I don't think that we've ever been the majority. And I do think that that kind of faith is embattled. Mm-hmm. And I think that yet it's meant to flourish. Mm-hmm. And I think that Christians have to, on one sense, recognize they live in an embattled moment. Mm-hmm. and not pretend they don't. Mm-hmm. I think that's a weakness. I also think that you can't fall into the hysteria of a persecution complex either. Mm-hmm. I, think, I don't think God speaks about our existence in persecution in that way, hmm. right? And so we have to like fall into neither of those traps. And I think that Nehemiah is a good example of somebody who fought, I mean, was struggling on all sides. Mm-hmm. He was struggling with, um, people want to kill him from the outside. Political issues related to the empire, mm-hmm. um, internal battles among among conflicts between the rich and poor, mm-hmm. issues with religious corruption among the clergy. Mm-hmm. Um, he had people who were seemed very devout when they started to build the wall, mm-hmm. but were shown to be hypocrites when it came to whether or not they would keep the temple pure. Mm-hmm. And then there was this huge issue with intermarriage and whether mm-hmm. or not. And, and how you actually create and keep a culture that believes in something mm-hmm. in the midst of a culture that doesn't, mm-hmm. right? Because if you just say, well, we'll intermarry with whoever's around us, the, your culture disappears. Mm-hmm. And Judaism was rooted in a culture. And so um, Ezra and Nehemiah had to handle this enormous problem of like, how do you, after 70 years of having our culture destroyed mm-hmm. by this other culture, because they were living under Babylonian supremacy, Right, and the Babylonians were intentionally doing everything they could to instill Babylonianism into right. the Jews, and so in order to not be completely devoured by that, they had to uphold their culture, mm-hmm. which requires non-intermarriage. 
right. functionally speaking, at least with human beings. And so this gets into the whole question of like, whether or not, um, and I mean, in fact, one of the only Old Testament commands that pulls through into the New Testament that isn't a basic moral command mm-hmm. is the rejection of intermarriage. Mm-hmm. That in the Old Testament, you were to marry another Jew or a converted Jew. You can mm-hmm. marry somebody who'd converted to Judaism, but you couldn't marry somebody who wasn't a Jew. In mm-hmm. the New Testament, the Apostle Paul explicitly says, you can marry whoever you want mm-hmm. as long as they belong to the Lord. So mm-hmm. you can interracially marry, you can interlinguistically marry, you can marry whoever you want right. who belongs to the Lord, meaning believes in Jesus and belongs to him. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things that like, has not changed. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because of a basic human insight that you can't, when you intermarry, you lose some of both cultures and you create a kind of fusion of what carries forward. Mm-hmm. And in a capitalist sense, that sounds good because you'll just keep the best and get rid of the worst. But that's not apparently how the Lord looks at it. Mm-hmm. He believes that the culture of the gospel is is a holistic thing mm-hmm. and you can't intermix that mm-hmm. and still ha- maintain its integrity. So that I think brings up an interesting question. You mentioned the the culture of the gospel. Um, Some of the things that you were talking about, um, they, they brought to mind this image of culture wars that we've known so much in the U S. And so I think maybe you could address exactly what culture are we trying to preserve when we, when we're having this conversation? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's a really complicated <laughs> question. Um, so the sh- I think the short, so Lloyd and I have had these discussions mm-hmm. as we've talked about building a multi-ethnic church mm-hmm. because if you really want to build a multi-ethnic church, you really are, it's really multicultural right? and you have to have multiple cultures. Mm-hmm. But if you believe that God wants to build his own culture mm-hmm. singularly, is that possible? Right? Sure. And so then you start grappling with the idea that like African-Americans who are Christians Mm -hmm. have something like a Christian African-American culture. Mm -hmm. And then you have like Anglo-Saxon Christians and they have kind of like an Anglo-Saxon Christian culture, right? Right. So you have all these people who have cultures Mm -hmm. and those cultures are, have Christians, right? Of course. But they're, they're very intermixed. And usually what that means is the cultural insights of your ethnic background mm-hmm. highlight certain things in the biblical ethic mm-hmm. and maximize them mm-hmm. and ignore things and minimize other things in the right. biblical ethic so that you it's lopsided. Mm-hmm. Right. So like Anglo-Saxon white people and Northern Europeans tend to really emphasize pers- the personal responsibility kind of commands mm-hmm. and how you are expected to carry your own load mm-hmm. and do your stuff and face your sin and you're your own worst enemy and you need to deal with your crap and so on. Mm -hmm. And they tend to minimize more, at least now in the age of individualism, the carry each other's burdens. Mm -hmm. Like if you're, if somebody asks you for your cloak, give it to them. Mm -hmm. Like these, these kind of like seemingly utterly irrational statements of, of interpersonal solidarity with people (laughs) you don't even know. Right. Right. You go into African American culture and it kind of flips Mm -hmm. the, the, um, the sort of tolerance and this sort of understanding mm-hmm. afforded people who ha- who don't seem to have their stuff together mm-hmm. is much higher. And the uh, sense of interpersonal solidarity is much mm-hmm. higher. Mm-hmm. And so there's more of the sense that we're in this together, that we're a family, that we've got to help each other. And what the level of expectation of how much help somebody would need mm-hmm. relative to when you start getting annoyed at them right. is, high, is high. It's just different. Right. Um, you get you've gotten to see some of this in Korean churches. Mm-hmm. Korean churches are definitely 
um, different than both. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and there are some, I've run into a number of Asian Christians who don't want anything to do with white churches or black churches mm. because of the corrupting influence they believe mm. that the white Christian culture and the black Christian culture will inflict on their young people. Sure. Right. It's, this is one of the same reason why non-Christian Indian immigrants in England mm-hmm. often send their children back to India for mm. ages 14 through the arrangement of their marriage because they do not want white British right. underclass culture destroying the character of their children. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is a problem, right? Like, yeah. so what a, a church in America has to do is say, okay, wait, we want to build a Christian culture, mm-hmm. but we have to start with recognizing that that doesn't mean a white Christian culture or a black Christian culture or an Asian Christian culture. We're going to have mm-hmm. to actually look at all these and try to figure out what is really Christian and what is really mm-hmm. our ethnic identity but it isn't even that simple because at some point you want to say, well, you see white people in their ethnic identity because of their assumptions mm-hmm. are seeing something that's really there in the Christian sure. ethic and emphasizing it well. Mm-hmm. Right. That's true for black Christians too. And of course, right? right. And so part of it is what you have to actually look at that cult, that culture and say, what do they see that we don't see? Mm-hmm. Right. And so for example, with African-American culture, their utilization of a more emotionally exuberant worship has a very real psychological effect, especially mm-hmm. if you're embattled mm-hmm. culturally. Yes. And that that's not just like, oh, black people like that and white people don't. No, black people have struggled with oppression more hmm. and they've specifically mm-hmm. developed art forms and art forms in worship that utilize emotion in such a way as to help support people emotionally mm-hmm. and psychologically to overcome oppression. Well, there's lots of white Christians who feel beaten down in their lives who would inc- really benefit from that right. cultural insight in that that's you could almost call it like a spiritual technology that they've <laughs> developed right and so what you want to do as an, as in trying to create this culture is to try to figure out a way to wed together these other christian subcultures in a mm-hmm. way that's maximally enriching of course that's really difficult because people don't agree on easily on what are all the best truly Christian spiritual technologies right. from these various cultures so that you can really create a great fusion. Right. And there, I mean, you can't do them all simultaneously either. Right. right. So, I mean, my husband and I are navigating this on a personal level because I'm married to a South Korean and I'm of white American, Norwegian, German background. Um, and we got a lot of advice going into marriage. And the thing that has really stuck with us is that we, we can't, have a Korean family culture. We can't have an American family culture. We have to try to make a gospel family culture, but we still have to choose what food to eat. We still have to speak a language. We still have to choose what holidays to celebrate and things like that. And we can't do everything simultaneously. And so you have to make those choices, but they're made in community and trying to understand the gospel significance and the motivation behind different things. And, um, right. And that's true for churches too. Right. I mean, there are some Latino churches that have Cinco de Mayo parties, Sure, you know, and great. That seem, would seem weird for some white churches other than they'd be like, mm-hmm. Oh, we get another party. That's great. <laughs> you know, so, and we, we've had this at like times of year and like ethnic food nights. Mm-hmm. And, um, there's some things that work really well. Like when people bring foods relative to their ethnicity to a potluck, that usually works great as long mm-hmm. as the spice is reasonable for the <laughs> non-spicy people. <laughs> But figuring out, but worship is another example, like mm-hmm. how soft and meditative, how exuberant, mm-hmm. how repetitively simple or theologically erudite the mm-hmm. poetry. Um, ultimately, in that case, it could, part of this in worship is, I think the reason is, is that all the different 
cultural worship styles really do have some great insights in them yeah, and that people are connected to them mm -hmm. deeply and they don't want to see that go away. They want to continue with that benefit. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we've done at High Point is we've kind of tried to do all of them. Mm -hmm. But the, the way this relates to Nehemiah, to bring mm -hmm. it back to the Old Testament, yep. is that with Nehemiah, um, they have this huge problem with intermarriage. Mm -hmm. And this is something that really puzzles people about both Ezra and Nehemiah. Mm -hmm. Because the way Ezra and Nehemiah handle this problem is they, um, they create a divorce edict mm -hmm. and they... They actually go through these all these families mm -hmm. and they determine whether or not these husbands need to divorce their mm -hmm. foreign wives. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, they do cause them right. to divorce their foreign wives, even though these families have children and so sure. on. And that just sounds horrible. And mm -hmm. it sounds like really anti-Christian. It sounds very anti-Christian and it sounds yeah. like a great way to destroy a society. Right. <laughs> just split up 70% of the families. Yeah. Absolutely. It does. Now, it, it seems like a lot of these families did not have children yet. Mm -hmm. And um, some of them did. Mm -hmm. And some of this was an example. Mm -hmm. I, I also am going to make an argument in the series that I actually don't think that they actually split up every marriage that was biracial. Mm -hmm. I think that they did it by, um, by who did or didn't convert. Mm -hmm. And partly, I think they, I think they probably made the decision by what language was spoken in the house. Hmm. So, okay. So I'm going to speak badly about a resource right now. <laughs> and it's not because I don't like all of this resource. It's just because I don't, I, I don't agree with what's said in it. Uh -huh. So a lot of people at high point and in crew and so on, um, use the Bible project videos mm -hmm. for the most part. I sometimes I am not a huge fan of how some of those books are interpreted, but usually mm -hmm. I think they're pretty good. Mm -hmm. So I affirm people when they use them. With Ezra and ne the Ezra and Nehemiah video, I really don't agree with mm -hmm. the way they the way they interpret this within biblical theology, right? Because everything in the Bible is about Jesus, which I agree with. That's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. They get to the end of Ezra and Nehemiah, and this is also true for Haggai and Zechariah. And they and what Mackey says is that the way we we should understand these books in terms of the flow of biblical revelation is that they are huge ups, right? So like God does some amazing thing. Mm -hmm. It looks like the great restoration that God is going to redeem and save his people. And then the people get doing it. He helps them. Mm -hmm. And then the thing kind of just miscarries. Hmm. Now, in a broad sense, I think that's actually correct. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but what he, what he also argues is that the leaders themselves fail. Hmm. And that's an important caveat. And the, I think the reason why Tim, Tim Ekida says that is because he's seeing this in the flow of salvation history. He obviously believes that that's the right interpretation of the book too, mm -hmm. right? Which I struggle with. But the idea is, is that none of these people are actually Jesus. Mm -hmm. as you, so as you interpret it in the biblical historical flow, the idea is, is that Haggai and Zechariah are good leaders, but they're not the Lord. Sure. Right? Just like David is a great king, but he still fails. Right. That prophets aren't any better. Hmm. And and administrators like Zechariah or priests like Ezra aren't any better, mm -hmm. and so he he argues that that uh, Haggai and Zechariah and then mainly Ezra and Nehemiah, mm -hmm. they do what they're supposed to do, but then they're faced with a big decision, mm -hmm. and they make the wrong decision. And that decision is what to do with these what to do with the foreign wives, okay. right? His belief is is that. God wants people to come in from all races and peoples. That's mm -hmm. what all the prophets had said. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that 
these people wanted to come in mm-hmm. to the, this new Israel that they were building was not a bad thing. It was a, it was a good thing in a way, mm-hmm. right? And what Ezra should have done was pastored those people mm-hmm. and made made good Jews out of them or good people of God out of them, right? right. And that instead of doing that, he took the idea that um, priests weren't supposed to intermarry mm-hmm. and, he, and that that was unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And and interpreted therefore that all these intermarriages were unacceptable and therefore should be severed through divorce. Mm-hmm. And that though he was trying to be theologically faithful, he actually missed the overall sweep of, of redemption history, which was God is bringing in all the peoples. Right. right. And so instead of realizing he should embrace this, he re- he believed that he should reject it. And he acted actually out of fear and closed mindedness instead mm-hmm. of seeing the sweep of salvation history. Mm-hmm. And so even though he was an extremely devout leader and the best leader that they had, mm-hmm. he still ultimately failed. Mm-hmm. Right. And he says that similar to something about Nehemiah. Right. right. And that Nehemiah keeps saying, seeing the thing go sideways. And Nehemiah keeps saying, God, remember me that I did this. Mm-hmm. And he, I think he sees it as a little bit self righteous. Mm hmm. And him recognizing that the reform he tried to create isn't really going to hold. Hmm. Now, on one level, I, I agree with that. I agree that like the reform didn't hold. Sure. There was 400 years of Silas. None of these leaders are Jesus. Mm-hmm. I think that's all true. However, I do not think that Ezra and Nehemiah are self-conscious of that interpretation. Hmm. Right? Because part of the question here is, what does Ezra think he's saying? Or mm-hmm. like Nehemiah is explicitly, Nehemiah is the author. Mm-hmm. Does Nehemiah... Is he telling us that? Mm-hmm. And I don't think so. I don't think Ezra and Nehemiah think that. I think what Ezra and Nehemiah think that they, what happened was they faced a terrible dilemma mm-hmm. and they made the most faithful choice that they could mm-hmm. and that they made the right choice. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I think that that's the, the right interpretation mm-hmm. because I think that's the interpretation that Ezra and Nehemiah are taking. Mm-hmm. And to take the interpretation that Mackie takes, I think ultimately is to know better to believe interpretationally, you know better than the Old Testament author mm-hmm. in those books. I don't, because that's where I don't follow him. I don't think the Old Testament author thought that. Mm-hmm. Now, I I see where he's coming from. And sure. to a certain extent, I think he's he's holding that biblical theology, that flow of revelation through the whole Bible mm-hmm. as strongly as he can to show that it's leading to Jesus. And I, that's the right attitude. Mm-hmm. And I think in a lot of ways, it's the right thing to convey. But one of, here's, here's one of the reasons why I temperamentally disagree with him. Mm-hmm. I tend to think that my what I want to do when I get in the pulpit is to appease modern secular people mm-hmm. and to look at this place where people are forced into divorce mm-hmm. and to say, okay, people are going to see that that's a hypocrisy with the New Testament because the New Testament takes an inc- right. incredibly strong stance against divorce and tells couples that where there's one Christian, one non-Christian in 1 mm-hmm. Corinthians 7, not mm-hmm. to get a divorce, right? Mm-hmm. That there's this inter- revelational dispute right that now i don't think it really is one but it seems that way to people Mm -hmm. and then secondly it just is terrible it's a great way to destroy families and societies and ruin kids childhoods and how can we how can we handle this right Mm -hmm. and when i know that i don't want to have to tell secular people this is this is right Mm -hmm. this is a part of god's will coming up with what seems to me like a very clever way to say well god wasn't for that Mm-hmm. these leaders failed and did that because the, the easiest way to get around something in the narrative books of the Bible is to say, this narrative book is just describing what happened. Mm-hmm. God isn't affirming what right. happened. Right. Right. So David can sleep with Bathsheba in the narrative and it doesn't mean God's for that. It just means that's what happened. Right. Similarly, you know, somebody can say, well, you know, yeah, Ezra and Nehemiah told these people that they had to get divorces, 
but doesn't mean God was for that. Mm-hmm. But that's not what I think the books are doing. I think both Ezra and Nehemiah are affirming the choice, though they believe the choice is terrible. Mm-hmm. But that they have only two choices. They can either cause these divorces to take place, mm-hmm. and it's horrible, or they can lose the cultural identity of the Jews forever. Mm-hmm. And the story of redemption ends, that those are their options, and that's it, mm-hmm. given human nature. Mm-hmm. And I think they're right. I think that if you, I think if they would not have done that, I think Judaism disappears from the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. I think it's part of God's providence for these men to have made that decision, mm-hmm. terrible though it was. And I think that there's two things that lead me to that conclusion. The first is is that there's a passage, and I'll talk about this in the sermons. I think it's in Nehemiah four, but it's earlier in the books where it talks about um, different groups of people who could be included and not included in the rebuilding of Israel. And I think there's a specific reference to people who have converted to Judaism, Mm -hmm. no matter what their ethnicity. Mm -hmm. And then also in the book, I think it's in the book of Nehemiah. As people who can or cannot participate in the rebuilding. Who can participate. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a, in the context of Ezra Nehemiah itself, the books don't make it super clear, but Mm -hmm. they presume that people who really convert to Judaism Mm -hmm. from whatever nation are in. Mm-hmm. And if they marry a, if they're if they marry a racial Jew, that's not a problem. Mm-hmm. But I think that it was assumed that if you came in and you became a Jew, that meant you learned Hebrew and you mm-hmm. spoke Hebrew mm-hmm. and you like encouraged the formation of Hebrew culture because this is a culture. Um, it's, it's one. I think it's one of the reasons why sometimes African Americans get frustrated when African Americans intermarry sure. with other racial groups. It's not because they like they think it's it's not because they're racist and they're like, well, you shouldn't do that. It's mm-hmm. because they're like hey, we're trying to create a culture here hmm. and you keep intermixing it and that's mm-hmm. not helpful. Hmm. And it's important for us because our cultural identity has been stomped on for a very long time. Right. And so cultures that have not had their cultural identity stomped on for a long time are not as sensitive about that. Mm-hmm. But Israel had had its cultural identity intentionally stomped on as an imperial like foreign policy mm-hmm. for 70 years. Mm-hmm. And now they're trying to recreate it. And the first thing these young horny guys do is they find the hottest girls in the towns around them that worship idols and they marry them. Mm -hmm. Right. And in the book of Nehemiah, it actually says that in a number of these families that have had children, Mm -hmm. the children don't speak any Hebrew at all. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now you can't get a more direct cultural piece of evidence that there is no Jewish culture in that household. Mm -hmm. It's gone. And Ezra and Nehemiah are looking at that and they're like, this is not going to work. And I think they're right. Hmm. I think it's a basic reality of human nature. And I think anybody who's willing to accept that's what people are like Mm -hmm. would would recognize that if that kind of intermarriage is allowed, there is no Judaism. Mm -hmm. And if there's no Judaism, there's no people of the promise Mm -hmm. in which the son is to be born who is the true and greater king. Mm -hmm. So although I agree with, with guys like Tim Mackey that ultimately Nehemiah fails right? Because he doesn't bring about a great utopia, neither does Ezra. I don't think it's their fault. Hmm. I think that they're still functioning under these divine concessions of coming up with the best thing you can do under Hmm. horrible circumstances because there is no true solution until Mm -hmm. the coming of the Savior. And in some ways, there's no true solution until the return of the Savior. Sure. You know? Right. Yeah, that was the term that was coming to mind while you were discussing this, these forced divorces and things and divine concession has come up in a few recent podcasts. I think we've talked right. about that in a few different contexts. Um, so it's helpful to think about that in this context as well. Right. 
Did you want me to, do you think I should define it for people again? You can, yeah, you can. Yeah, so again. a defined concession, right? A, a concession to concede something or a concession is to say, we'll give you that. And so a divine concession is where God says, if I was doing this from nothing right now, mm-hmm. we'd do it like this, A. But because I'm speaking into history that's already been rolling for a while and already has all these problems and issues and contexts and environments and so on, mm-hmm. I'm going to make it a better but not like I, not as good as I would want to make it, mm-hmm. right? And so he concedes some things while improving them. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the regulations on slavery in the Old Testament are considered mm-hmm. divine concession. Slavery is a fundamental part of all human cultures at the time. It's actually economically necessary for the distribution of goods and to take care of the poor and all that. And so he regulates it very heavily, but he doesn't abolish it, mm-hmm. right? Similarly, um, in divorce, right? Mm-hmm. The divorce commandments in the Old Testament, Jesus explicitly says, Moses gave you that command because your hearts were hard. Mm-hmm. Meaning, and then Jesus says, it wasn't like that from the beginning. In the beginning, it was, man, you know, the man should leave his father and mother be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh and what God has joined, man shouldn't separate. Mm-hmm. So Jesus is saying, God's design for men and women is that they would never separate right. once they marry. But under circum- circumstances, hardness of heart incapacity or even in the new testament in cases of adultery and abandonment Mm -hmm. in those situations because they're already so bad god concedes Mm -hmm. something which is allowing divorce in those very rare circumstances Mm -hmm. so there the bible is actually full of these divine concessions in lots of places where god is saying i want you to behave in faith like this it's really not the best thing Mm -hmm. but it's the best thing right now right which is why christians shouldn't be troubled by the fact that there's slavery in the old testament and slavery is being regulated out of existence and then Christianity kind of undermines it. But it wasn't until about three centuries into Christianity that there was a very large abolition movement and mm-hmm. the and there was the first great abolition movement that came through the church to the Western world. That was a process, but that's bound to happen in human societies. Sure. Because I, sometimes I say this about slavery that, you know, when slavery was abolished in Europe, it wasn't like we went straight from there to like modern liberal democracy, mm-hmm. right? There were like, we had serfs, which serfs right. were a little better than slaves, but not much mm-hmm. until you got to Magna Carta where you had certain rights for lords. I mean, it's like it, it literally was a about a 3000 year evolution mm-hmm. to figure out how we were going to live together. And now we're going to we're going through problems again economically because we're getting robots that can do jobs mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. artificial intelligence that can do the jobs of even smart, educated people. And we're about to enter a new era where our relations to each other are going to be radically changed Mm -hmm. and Christians are going to have to try to lead again in Mm -hmm. like, what is a humane and good way to do that? Mm -hmm. Thank you. So we may be living in divine concessions in labor relations until the return of Jesus, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean we can't make it the best we can. That's what a divine concession is. What's the best we can do given the environment that we've got. Why should we not think of a divine concession as a divine cop out? I think that it's because in each case he you're, he's dealing with humans he's unwilling to wipe out mm-hmm. to get what he wants. Mm-hmm. And the Bible keeps teaching that we are incredibly unwilling and unable to do what we're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And so in order for him to do exactly what's right, we're, we're the ones who get broken in the process, mm-hmm. right? And so because whenever God doesn't cop out, mm-hmm. there are lots of places in the Bible where God doesn't give a concession. Right. Those are those are called judgments, right? And everybody dies. <laughs> Basically, annihilation. Right. Is the conclusion. Right. That's your other option. So, right. if you don't like divine concessions, great. You what you're saying is God should kill me, right? Mm-hmm. That because those are the two realities. Mm-hmm. God can either work for redemption over a longer process by which He's trying to teach human beings how to come back to His will, mm-hmm. or He 
doesn't cop out and judges those who won't submit to his will, which is then mm-hmm. death. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that that's to say God shouldn't cop out mm-hmm. is to say, I wish to die within mm-hmm. the Christian theological framework. Yeah. Um, another question that comes to mind when we're thinking, well, I, I can think of a pithy way to say that. Sorry. Anna. Oh, please do. A pithy please way do. to say this would be like, God should allow for divine concessions because you are a divine concession yourself. Beautifully done. Thank you. (laughs) Um, So as we're talking about Old Testament books with Israel and intermarriage and all these things um, and culture and battle for the purity of culture, uh, another issue that can be a stumbling block for Christians today is confusing the church today us Mm -hmm. today as Christians with Israel. So as we're reading Nehemiah, how do we take lessons from it while remembering that we are not Israel? Yeah. I mean, I'm going to try to um, display how to do that interpreting Mm -hmm. in the sermons. Okay. But yeah, it has to come through the lens of the new Testament and the gospel and Mm -hmm. God's Christ in Jesus. Right. Um, And some of those things are explicitly different. Like for example, divorce commands Mm -hmm. are explicitly different. Um, but I think that there's a, there, I think there is a lot of transferable stuff in Nehemiah. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons I picked it. Um, but yeah, we do have to think about, about what is different and right. what is the same. I mean, for example, in intermarriage for Israel, there were racial considerations. There was language, there was ancestry for the church today. When we're taking lessons on intermarriage, we're not thinking about racial questions, language questions, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sort of. That, those, those, that's th- one actually but those one of the aren't the I... boundaries of the people of God today, right? Or what are? Um, ethnicity or ancestry. Those aren't they are not today. the boundaries for the Correct. people of God today. I, I struggle a little bit with saying they were then. Sure. Because there, there were issues related to native Israelites and so on. Mm-hmm. But in the Torah, there's just a ton of regulations mm-hmm. about how the foreigner living among you. Right basically should be treated like one of you in mm-hmm. almost every way. And anyone who became a Jew mm-hmm. got the full rights of Jews. Absolutely. Right? And, right. and which meant you could marry them. Right. And so, for example, I think that's the, I think that's the assumed dynamic in the book of Ruth, mm-hmm. right? That um, she's a Moabitess who mm-hmm. becomes a Jew. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is the case for, and, and this is one of the ways I make sense of some of the things in Nehemiah. And so I don't actually think in the Old Testament, it was it, that was also the case. Right. That like anybody could become a Jew. Mm-hmm. I think the difference, there is a difference in the sense that the, the people of God, the Jews, weren't in the same way sent to mm-hmm. the nations. But even then, prophets are sent to the nations. And as we go to the nations, we're not supposed to intermarry with them other than to those who belong to the Lord. Sure. And then we we're free to. Right. So the marriage commitment is actually one of the only things I don't think, mm. or I think is pretty much the thing. Mm-hmm. I think there are some things that are different, like what should we do to be saved in any right. context? And do we come to the Lord by re-celebrating the temple of booths? Mm-hmm. Right. Or do we come back to the Lord celebrating the spiritual dynamics mm-hmm. that are celebrated in the temple of booths? Mm-hmm. Right. But the fact that the joy of the Lord is our strength, that's completely exactly the same. Mm-hmm. The idea that we should repent and return to God when our hearts turn from him is the same. Mm-hmm. I think the dynamics of dealing with a lack of integrity as a leader by having absolute unquestionable public integrity mm. is un- totally unchanged. Mm-hmm. I think firing people and throwing people out when necessary when they're, they should be 
fulfilling a trust mm-hmm. that you have to get rid of the people who are corrupt. Mm-hmm. If you're the leader, I think that's unchanged. Mm-hmm. So I, I think praying before you do get into something, mm-hmm. I think being incredibly passionate about the meaning of something before you say you're going to change it. Mm-hmm. Like Nehemiah fasts and cries and prays for days mm-hmm. before he ever brings it to the king. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what was the last time any of us ever fasted and cried and yeah. prayed for days? Um, we just don't care about anything that much. Mm. And I think that matters a lot. Mm. Like, um, so I, I think, I think there's so many fundamental things in Nehemiah that just, they just flat transfer directly. Mm. And I think it's one of the reasons I'm excited about preaching the book. Yeah. I do want to say to this about listeners, um, that it's not just going to be like a culture war sermon thing. Right. Like we'll talk about that a little bit, but for the most part, it's going to be about like how character, mm-hmm. godliness and character applied in faith even when you're being really attacked mm-hmm. can cause you, you can still flourish. Right. That's the point in your personal life, in your marriage, in mm-hmm. your life with your friends, in the development of your career in your, just your whole life, mm-hmm. how this kind of godly character when combined with faith can cause you to flourish in the midst mm-hmm. of opposition. I think that's the big thing. Nehemiah is always being opposed by something mm-hmm. And they're very different oppositions. It's like seven or eight different kinds of opposition. Mm. And he faces them all a little differently. Mm -hmm. And I think we as Christians can learn profoundly how to face opposition with incredible wisdom Mm. and poise by studying this book. Mm -hmm. So, and because a lot of churches will study this book when they're having a capital campaign, Mm. trying to raise money. We're going to build the wall. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, there's some of that. He does have to raise money and build a wall. Right. But he doesn't really raise much money. He just tells people to bring rocks and they just build the thing. Mm. You know, so we're not doing it for that. We're doing this for all the other reasons. Mm. Um, so, I mean, that makes me really excited for this series. I can think about so many points in my life um, that would drive me to want to understand those things more. Good, because I feel like I can't get you excited about this. <laughs> I'm the low-hanging fruit, yeah, right? right. Um, but what about my um, unchurched, un non-Christian friend or coworker, what, what would there be for them in a series like this? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. I think first of all, some of the dynamics here are, are sort of non-religious in their mm-hmm. fundamental nature. So the kind of opposition that Nehemiah faces mm-hmm. and the ways he handles it could be a self-improvement class for any person, no matter what their religious mm-hmm. ideas. So, a non-Christian could come to Nehemiah and learn about how to flourish in opposition mm-hmm. atheistically. And you still could learn a lot mm. right now to, for it to be its fullness and mm-hmm. have its full integrity, it is wrapped up in faith in God mm-hmm. and in what that does to this human soul and how it creates character. So I think in, in one way it's a great self-help series mm-hmm. that might dr- be helpful to draw them further into how, that really has to be driven by the gospel and by mm-hmm. a rootedness in God and the freedom from worldliness mm-hmm. and so on. Um, so I think it's a good bait and switch series like that for a non-Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it also gets at things people really feel. I think people feel like the world is very embattled right now, mm-hmm. especially in America, politically in terms of our media and stuff like that. People feel really embattled and hurt and anxious about it. Mm-hmm. I think Nehemiah can speak to some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that there are some places in Nehemiah where he feels lonely. Mm. And I think outside of anxiety, loneliness is the, the next ep- epidemic. Yeah. And I think that there's some some reality to that mm-hmm. that I think people can connect with. So I think there's a lot of human connection in Nehemiah. Mm-hmm. 
Um, as you've been studying this, I know you started working on it for some lectures and then for the sermon series. Mm-hmm. What is, is there anything that has personally really uh, affected you or challenged you as you're reading through on a devotional level? Yeah. Um, Nehemiah is a very non-idealistic book hmm. in the sense that like there are no unmitigated good guys hmm. except maybe Nehemiah. Mm-hmm. It's one of his frustrations mm-hmm. that the people who should have stood with him just really didn't. Mm-hmm. And people he leaves in charge just don't do a good job. When he, he, There's just one point where he's trying to find a guy to d- do this job for him because he has to leave it alone. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I appointed this guy because... He fears God more than most people do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't like, because he fears God. Right. He was just like... Better you know, than he, average. Right? He fears God a lot more than most people, yeah. right? And so you could tell that he felt like he was living in a culture that was trying to thrive mm. in a degraded state. Mm. And whenever a culture tries to thrive in a state of cultural degradation, mm-hmm. it just keeps miscarrying. Mm. Like it, it tries to like jerry-rig itself up to like do something great Mm -hmm. but then there's no staying power because there's no cultural like capital built up to uh, for keeping things going yeah everything just it it heats up and then it flops so defeating it It feels yeah and then some of the people that you trust in the most just stab you in the back like Mm -hmm. one of the priests one of the main priests in the book of ezra nehemiah that like he's like the first guy to start building the wall. Mm-hmm. He marries Tobiah, the villain's daughter, hmm. because Tobiah is the most powerful guy in the Trans Euphrates. Yeah. So it's it's like marrying the president's daughter. Who would want to do that, right? Mm-hmm. But she's not a Jew. Mm-hmm. Like in the only place where the Torah says you have to marry a Jewish virgin mm-hmm. is the, only the Levites. The Levite priests have <laughs> right. to marry a Jewish version. That's it. Anybody else can marry anybody else they want right. so long as they're part of the nation of Israel, right? And this guy marries like mm-hmm. a Samaritan woman mm-hmm. who's their biggest enemy. That mm-hmm. is their biggest enemy. And then he not only marries her, but he gives his father-in-law, their big enemy, a room in the temple mm-hmm. for his mm-hmm. junk. Yeah. And like Nehemiah just can't believe it. Right. He just, it's like, it's not like a little corruption. Right. Like, this is crazy. Horrific, blatant. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. He's bringing unclean things by definition into the space of ultimate cleanness. I mean, just, it's crazy. And not just like bringing in for a visit, bringing them in residence. Right. Into the temple. Right. Yeah, it's crazy. And so Nehemiah is just so frustrated by that. Um, And he he also gets really frustrated by people's just blatant self-interest. Mm. So there's one point where the, they're trying to build the wall mm-hmm. and the poor people are like, we can't build the wall because the rich people are charging us like 3% interest. Mm-hmm. And so we're losing all of our property and lands because mm-hmm. we don't make that much profit. And so mm-hmm. they're complete work. We've already, in fact, they say we've already had to sell our daughters into right. slavery mm-hmm. because we couldn't pay. Mm-hmm. And Nehemiah like, turns to these rich guys, some of whom aren't even helping rebuild the, the wall. Right. And he's like, what the hell? heck are you doing yeah and so he gets really frustrated by that and as i've read through i've recognized that's more common than not hmm. wait I what is the... the the fact that like there's not a lot of people who are 100 percent trustworthy hmm. to fulfill any job in a completely disinterested way hmm. and so a if you don't have a nehemiah you're toast <sighs> there has to be at least yeah. one mm-hmm. and so 
I think that's a challenge to anybody who wants to be in spiritual leadership at all hmm. is you're not going to have a lot of Nehemiahs. Hmm. And so if you're not willing to be one, then you don't have one. Hmm. And so you had better be willing to be that and not expect that anybody, anybody else is going to be willing to do that. Oof. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, that kind of like reaffirmed for me yeah. that like, I have to, I have to do that. Mm. Like I have to be that person and maybe the God will be gracious and there will be, mm-hmm. you know, Ezra was like that. I mean, there were a few more people in this story right. that were like that and you just have to have enough mm-hmm. to sway that balance so that the people follow that integrity rather than right. fall apart. And that's what you see in the book of Nehemiah where when Nehemiah is there, mm-hmm. everything's moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And the minute he goes back to Susa, mm-hmm. everything starts falling apart mm-hmm. and pretty rapidly. Yeah. And so without the presence of a leader of absolute integrity, mm-hmm. everything falls apart. And I think that's one of the things that Mackey's getting at when he talks about them, none of these these leaders essentially failing. Mm-hmm. Even though I don't agree with this interpretation, the idea that they're all human leaders, mm-hmm. that ultimately their era fails, right. and that none of them are Jesus, the final and great king, with absolute integrity, mm-hmm. that's correct. I think that's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. And I think Nehemiah isn't Jesus. That's true. Right. And neither am I. My, like my era is going to end and I'm going to have a lot of failures too. Yeah. And so that's also sobering. Right. Yeah. I think it's really tempting when we read narratives like this to see ourselves automatically in the role of the hero of the story, right? That yeah. um, everyone around us is messing up all the good things that we're trying to do. And um, so I, I appreciate what you said because it's not that you see yourself as the Nehemiah of the story. It's that you see yourself needing to be. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, part of it is just, I, I try to see myself in as many of the characters as I can. Right. So I see myself in Nehemiah and that I want to be like him. Mm-hmm. I see myself in Ezra and that I, I want to be like him. Mm-hmm. I also see myself in that, that priest who's, I, his name's like, I can't remember right now, <laughs> but like the guy who he starts out so great. Yeah. He's the first guy to build the wall. Mm-hmm. And then he ends up betraying everything. Mm-hmm. And I'm and just thinking like, cause that could have been 20 years. Sure. You know, it's really hard to be godly for decades. Right. And I don't want to end up there, you mm-hmm. know? And so part of it is like, I see myself in that guy and mm-hmm. be like, that could just as easily be me. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, yeah, it's the kind of stuff I'm, you think about. You have to see yourself in every character and what every character has to teach you. Yeah. Um, how long do you expect this series to run? Um, I have a schedule. I think it's like 11 weeks. I saw it go through. It's gonna. It's through Easter, yeah. Okay. Um, is there any any final words? Anything else you want people of High Point or beyond High Point to know about the series? Yeah, just don't let yourself be cynical before you even start. Mm. I mean, sometimes you'll be like, "Oh, it's an Old Testament narrative book, and it's not." Because Ephesians was so great. Mm-hmm. I mean, our attendance went up, and we we're all you know, all our staffs trying to figure out why the attendance went up. We don't really know. <laughs> um, but part of it was we were in Ephesians, and the content in there is just so directly fantastic smooth poetic yeah. easily applicable yeah very, yeah, very practical yeah. soaring language and yeah and so now you were like we're gonna do nehemiah this post-exilic blah blah, blah. blah. and people are kind of people could easily be like <laughs> oh my gosh i don't want to but it's great yeah it's great content it's great stuff i think it's gonna be very helpful if i preach it correctly mm-hmm. and so don't let yourself get cynical great um, come expectantly, I think, and that'll be the yeah. best thing you can do. That's true for every Sunday. But mm-hmm. Great. 
Well, thanks so much, Nick. And we hope that you'll join us for the series on Nehemiah flourishing in the midst of opposition starting January 5th. Yeah. And it's we're not leading with the word Nehemiah. It's just going to be called flourishing in the midst of opposition. And there'll be Nehemiah somewhere down there because we figured <laughs> we should advertise that way. Great. Flourishing in the midst of opposition <laughs> starting January 5th. Yeah. High Point Church. Hope to see you there. All right. See you guys later. Bye. listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.